This evening I would like to continue some exploration along the theme of personal mythology and freedom. Yesterday evening I was speaking about the mixture of longing and fear that is evoked in us by the possibility of awakening, of awakening. I was speaking about the mixture of allure and terror that arises at times within us in relationship to understanding emptiness and freedom. There is a part of us that intuitively reaches for the greatness of freedom to see the end of limitation. And there is a part of us that questions the price that we may need to pay. There seems to be a very direct link between dissolving separation and the dissolution of a separate self. And it is this possibility of dissolution that raises within us the voices of defensiveness or fear. There is perhaps a fear of being no one, a fear of being invisible, if we were to let go of our story, if we were not to define ourselves by our personal mythology. And I feel for many women this dilemma is particularly acute. For many women, an essential part of their awakening, their healing and opening into life, has been learning to reclaim their own stories, reclaim their own lives, and reclaim their own journeys. Countless women have discovered through questioning, through pain, through struggle, and through their own experience, the extent to which they live someone else's story and travel someone else's journey in their lives. The expectations and the models, the images and the demands that are thrust upon us through our lives play a very significant role in constructing the personal mythology that we believe to be true about ourselves through the authorities in our lives, and through the variety of influences, including expectation, we have learned about good and bad. We have learned about acceptable and unacceptable, about what is worthy and what is unworthy. Through our own fears and insecurities, through an essential level of not knowing who we are, we find ourselves yearning for the acceptance and approval and love of others. So we do also find ourselves absorbing on a cellular level the expectations and models and images, the demands that are extended to us because they are the path to those things that we yearn for. So we strive and many times struggle in our lives to achieve these standards of worthiness and achieve these standards of acceptability. 
And in that search, we are driven by the twin forces of reward and punishment, the desire for success and the fear of failure. We can absorb so deeply the expectations and the voices and the demands of, ad- of others, absorb them so deeply that they become, or are even seen to be, our own personal goals, our personal ambitions, our personal aspirations that we are pursuing. Sometimes we don't know any longer how to distinguish in whose voice we are listening to, what is actually guiding us in our lives. Some weeks ago, I had a a lunch meeting with a woman I hadn't met before, and uh, I can only describe this woman as being incredibly willowy. And we sat down at a table, and I pulled out my rather... I have to confess, rather juicy-looking sandwich. And she pulled out some crackers. And she looked at my sandwich, and she said, I wish I could eat your sandwich. (laughs) She said, but I can't. You can't imagine what would happen to me if I ate your sandwich. Even our ways of assessing ourselves, our ways of measuring ourselves, our ways of judging ourselves, we believe to be very accurate. We believe to be the truth because we have learned the lessons in our lives very well. We have learned what is acceptable within the appearance of our bodies. We have learned what is acceptable in the field of saintliness, We have learned what is acceptable in the field of femininity and what is acceptable in the territory of personality. We have also discovered the penalties that we pay in our lives through living somebody else's story and following somebody else's path. In doing so, we carry within us the ever-present tension of the judge, the critic, the censor, who is always reminding us that we are not quite good enough, that there is still some distance to travel until we find acceptability. We have learned the lessons of frustration and self-negation that are intrinsic to a life that is dedicated to gaining approval and affirmation. We have perhaps explored that most significant landscape of pain and struggle that is born of being exiled from what is true, what is authentic, what is most trustworthy and creative within ourselves. And as a result of learning these lessons, many women have resolved that they were no longer willing to be a prisoner of anyone else's expectations or needs that they are no longer willing to be who someone else wants them to be. And many women have also resolved to no longer attempt to achieve these models of perfection 
and acceptability that are dispensed by the authorities in our lives. And this kind of resolve is a very genuine and very essential aspect of awakening and of healing. It is also true that for many women to learn how to trust themselves, how to listen to and embrace every aspect of their being with openness and compassion, that this is one of the greatest struggles and one of the most difficult lessons to learn. And yet, in coming here, in our willingness to be alone, to be still, to listen inwardly, we are actually embodying that lesson. In having the great courage and wisdom to set aside that the multitude of voices that endlessly instruct us to become something other, to strive for something other. We are embodying a great patience and trust in no longer being governed or directed by the voice of the judge or the critic, no longer surrendering to the world of assumptions and conclusions that endlessly replay the judgments of the past. We are exhibiting a great courage and a great insight. The courage that allows us to have the trust to question whether the voices we are listening to are actually our own. There's a story of a, a sadhu, an ascetic in India, and some of you know this story, who's a silent ascetic who lives by a waterfall and many people from all over India come to visit with him. And every morning he gets up and stands beside the waterfall and watches it all day. And at the end of the day he bows and says, well done. (coughs) Nothing more, just well done. And that is the kind of acknowledgement too we need to be able to offer to ourselves. It has taken for some women years of struggle and pain, years of doubt and fear to come to a point where they feel they are living their own lives, making their own choices, being guided by their own wisdom and living a life which is authentic and creative. In the light of all of this struggle and effort, it is easy to understand the ambivalence, the reluctance, at times the implacable resistance that arises. When we are greeted with the encouragement to let go of our story, to let go of our personal mythology. It took so long to have one. We're not sure whether this is the right time to be enlightened. (laughs) For many women, so much time has been spent actually learning to be someone, learning to be visible in the world, learning how to embody the confidence and trust they have in themselves 
in their work and in their relationship, in their lives, that to live in a spirit of emptiness, to live in a spirit of freedom, can sometimes sound like just another way of being no one, and perhaps even another prescription for invisibility. And in the talk this evening, I would like to look again at personal mythology, at the power of our stories, the wisdom that they may offer to us, and the limitations that they may well impose. Even to look at the limitation that might be imposed, even in having a good story. Now, we all have a story. All of us have a story about ourselves, about the world, about our lives. Our personal story is revealed in the kind of thoughts that we entertain or have thrust upon us. Our personal story is revealed in the feelings that arise or that haunt us, in the opinions and the judgments that we hold to be true. Our story is revealed in the things that we feel that we must avoid and in the things that we feel we must pursue. Our stories are revealed in the things that we aspire to, that we value as being worthy, and in the things that we reject or deny. Our stories are made visible through our fears, through our defenses, through our descriptions. Now, all of our stories have a beginning. Sometimes we are hosting a rather transient story, a fleeting story, a story that arises and passes dependent upon whatever mind state or feeling is predominant in a particular moment. I mean, many of you may have seen your story change a hundred times in a single day. You know, I'm, I'm terrific, I'm terrible, I'm wonderful, I'm a failure, I'm angry, I'm compassionate. You know, these, these are stories that are supported by holding on to a particular feeling, by identifying with a particular thought or by a particular judgment. But sometimes our stories have a much more ancient history. Sometimes our stories are ones of many chapters, rather like Gothic novels. <laughs> you know, we don't even know where they begin. It's impossible to trace their beginnings even. And in our rather lengthy stories, our historical stories, we see the ways in which our own story is undeniably linked to the stories of others. A young girl who is taught that she is worthless or inadequate is perhaps inheriting the messages of another storyteller. The child who is pushed into striving, into achieving, is inheriting somebody else's story. The fears that are passed on, the anxieties and the concerns, the dreams and the fantasies that we entertain as our own, we have often inherited from many different sources in our lives. 
Our stories are part of their story. Their story is part of our story. Sometimes we inherit memories and thoughts and feelings which have been passed down through many generations. Hatred and prejudice and judgment, anger can be passed from generation to generation. As children, we learn about these states of mind. We learn about prejudice. We learn about opinions and judgments. We absorb other people's stories. Our stories are equally formed by our own life experience and the events that take place in our lives. Moments of rejection, moments of fear, moments of abuse or moments of exploitation. They are all themes, all chapters that contribute to informing the story about ourselves. The experience Experiences we have of intimacy, of closeness, of love and acceptance, these two play a contributing factor, form chapters in our own story. Through all of these experiences, we create a certain mythology about ourselves, a certain story. We forget how much this learning is a process. No one is born angry. No one arrives clothed in the identity of a victim or in the identity of an abuser. No one arrives clothed in the identity of someone who is powerless or someone who dominates. The victim and the striver, the abuser and the exploiter, the powerless and the powerful. Our past, the past of others, binds together to shape our present. In forming our story, all of these events and factors give birth to a sense of who we are in this moment. Now, our understanding or our belief in who we are shapes our experience of life. It shapes our experience of the world. Our sense of who we are, which is made visible through our descriptions, our judgments, our conclusions about ourselves, this sense shapes our belief in what is possible for us and what is not possible. We have, in our story, a sense of a separate self. Or we are possessed by the notion of a separate self. Possessed by this notion, all things and all people are seen to be separate from us. We call this separate self our individuality. It seems to be what makes us unique in the world, even when that uniqueness is not a uniqueness we would choose. In living our stories, our stories become ourselves. And in living our stories in the present, our present also shapes our future, just as our present has been shaped by the past. Now, I would like to use a little bit of an analogy here. 
to understand the way in this process, the way this process of shaping and conditioning takes place. I'd like you to imagine, okay, a group of people who gather together to climb a mountain. One person within that group will take one look at the mountain and say, there's got to be a better day to do this. <laughs> Another person will approach the first steps and the path on the mountain, dragging with them a heavy suitcase filled with a parachute and a hot water bottle and food rations and a first aid kit and a book to read and SOS flares and everything that they might possibly need to cope with the dangers they're sure they're going to meet in that climb. Another person will leap from the bushes, wild-eyed and barefoot, <laughs> and go charging up the mountain without any thought of the consequences of what they are doing. Another person will begin to climb the mountain with the clear intention of getting to the top. And just a few steps down the road, they'll encounter, you know, a little bit of an obstacle, a rock in the way or a tree to climb over. And they'll sigh and say, I don't think so. <laughs> Looks like too much. Another person will begin with clear intention to climb the mountain, and they'll get around the corner and they'll see this really wonderful view. And they'll say, hey, this is a good place to take a rest. And they'll sit down and relax, and pretty much they're so absorbed in the view, they've just forgotten about climbing the mountain. Another person will want to really show they can climb this mountain <laughs> and yet feel very fearful, feel totally convinced they can't do it. So as not to lose face a little bit around the corner, they might stage a twisted ankle or, <laughs> you know, and have to be stretchered off the mountain. Too bad, too bad they couldn't do it. Another person will sit at the bottom of the mountain and look up and wonder about where the shortcuts are. You know, is there a helicopter? Is there a mule that can be hired? There's got to be another way of doing this. Now, each of these people is living their story. They are making visible in their journey their belief in who they are. In being directed by their story and living their story, they are actually reinforcing the past. The striver, the victim, the negotiator, the anxious person, the master, all of these identities and all of these stories are made more real and more solid through living them in the present. Our stories from the past continue 
to shape our present, and in shaping our present, also shape our future. This moment is the mother of the next moment. This mother is the mother of all of the next moments in our lives. The way that we respond to this moment creates the history that we carry into the next moment. It is important, perhaps, to extend this analogy of the mountain, to look at the ways in which we approach retreats, to look at the ways in which we approach our lives, and the ways in which our stories may live on. Many times on retreats, we duplicate the stories of our lives. And yet retreats also offer to us the possibility of being a mirror. This is where we can see our stories. This is where we can see these duplications. And in being present, we have the capacity to, for our present and our next moment, to be shaped in entirely new ways rather than by the past. In looking into the mirror of a retreat, We can actually learn the lessons of where freedom lies. We can question the reality of our stories and question the reality of this sense of self that we believe in, which is to question the reality of the world of appearances and separation. Now, sometimes we have the thought that says, well, in our approach to climbing the mountain, We are actually expressing the wisdom that we have learned from the past. That we are actually expressing the wisdom that we have learned in our stories. We may say, well, you know, before I tried to climb the mountain and I fell and got hurt. Therefore, it's wise for me to protect myself. We may say, well, before in the past, You know, I've surrendered too much, and it's wise for me to rush wild-eyed and barefoot up the mountain. We may say, well, before, I've been too much driven by ambition in my life, and therefore it's wise for me to take these frequent rest stops and enjoy the view. It is possible that this is true. We hope that the wisdom that we have derived from the past, that we have derived from our experiences, that we've derived from our stories, is actually a wisdom that has taught us how to lead, lead and live our lives with greater skillfulness, with greater balance, and with greater wisdom. But it is important to question the possibility that as long as the past And as long as our stories are our reference point for the present, then we are not free in the present. We are bound to the past, even when our present in our lives is a reaction to the past. Sometimes we see this on retreat. Sometimes people come on retreat and they have strong reactions, say, to the structure or to the schedule. And they have all of these images of authoritarian structures, boarding schools, convents, and parents, and the past in their lives. And they say, no way. 
No way, I've done this one before. So when we say sit, they walk. When we say walk, they sit. <laughs> and they think I'm free. You know, well, I'm free because I'm not being bound by that authoritarian structure. Sometimes people say, well, you know, in the past I've always been powerless in the face of pain. You know, I've always been a victim. Well, here I am, you know, I'm going to show what I can do with pain, you know. And they're sitting there in agony with sweat pouring down their face, filled with this sense, you know, I'm not bound to the past. Sometimes people have been, you know, a great master in their life, you know, overcoming and suppressing and say, well, this time, you know, I'm just going to surrender, you know, they're rolling around on the floor, you know, they're, you know, sinking in the bathroom, weeping copious levels of tears, you know. I'm not being a victor anymore. I'm not bound by the past. There is no freedom in reaction. It is important that we all learn from our stories, that we all learn from our past, that we all learn from our fears and our pains and our struggles, because often from our stories, we learn the lessons of how to live with greater dignity, greater wisdom, and greater compassion. Through learning from the lessons in our lives, through learning from our stories, we learn what contributes to sorrow and to suffering, and we learn what contributes to freedom and to pain and to happiness. <clears throat> These are lessons we need to learn again and again in our lives so that we are no longer willing to consent to anything that furthers division, that furthers alienation, that furthers conflict so that we are deeply committed to nurturing and embodying in our lives everything that contributes to well-being and integrity and wisdom. We learn the lessons of our past. We learn the lessons from our stories so that we can move on, so that we can let go. We learning these lessons well frees us to draw upon something else other than the past as a means of shaping our present. Learning these lessons and letting go frees us to draw upon the openness and the confidence and the wisdom that we have within ourselves as being a foundation for the present. There's something <clears throat> I'd like to read. A woman walking along a high road sees a great river, its near bank dangerous and frightening, its far bank safe. She collects sticks and foliage and makes a raft and paddles across the river and reaches the other shore. Now suppose that after she reaches the other shore, she takes the raft and puts it on her head and walks with it on her head wherever she goes. Would this be using the raft in an appropriate way? No. <laughs> in case you had any questions, Mother. <laughs> A reasonable woman will realize that the raft has been very useful to her in crossing the river and arriving safely on the other shore. 
But that once she has arrived, it is proper to leave the raft behind and walk on without it. This is using the raft appropriately. In the same way, all truths should be used to cross over. They should not be held on to once you have arrived. You should let go of even the most profound insight or the most wholesome teaching, all the more so unwholesome teachings. To be free in our lives, to be free in ourselves. On a very deep level, we need to be willing to let go of that which has been useful in crossing over, which means also being willing to let go of much of our personal mythology as a reference reference point, as a guiding light for the present. In letting go, we can open to new ways of being and seeing that are filled with vitality, with questioning, and with exploration. When we look at our past, when we look at our stories, we're often looking at moments of pain and fear, of moments of sorrow and joy that have been very significant and impactful in forming our stories. In looking at these moments from the past, We are looking at the events in our lives. There are many events in our lives which have played a very strong part in shaping our story and in shaping our sense of who we are in a very dramatic way. There may be many events in our lives which have harmed us or wounded us or hurt us deeply. There may have been events of abuse, of rejection, of disillusionment. There may have been events where we have been terrified. There may have been moments and events of rejection, of failure and loss, which have deeply scarred our sense of who we are. A very great part of healing and awakening is opening to the truth of these events in our lives, to opening to the truth of these experiences and moments of pain. In opening to the truth of these events, we are enabled to let go of guilt, to let go of blame, to let go of despair. They are significant dimension of awakening, It is very important to understand that the truth of the events in our lives cannot describe the truth of who we are. No matter how many rejections we have received in our lives, this doesn't translate into being a truth that we are unworthy. No matter how many sorrows or tragedies we have encountered, there is no truth in the description or the story of being a victim. No matter if we have suffered abuse, there is no truth to the story that somehow we deserved it or caused it or were powerless before it. When we marry the truth of the events in our lives to our sense of who we are, then we create a wounded personal mythology. 
and I, in that, are often sentenced to endlessly replay in the past in different forms. We are married to that which we cannot let go of. We are married to that which we believe in, and in that marriage we engage in an endless dance. We have perhaps seen that here. The dances we engage in, with memories, with wants, with hungers, with fears, with angers, that as long as we are married to those moments, to those events, to those appearances, then our story gains solidity. There is a great wisdom, actually, in learning, perhaps, to question this marriage, It's a great wisdom to learn in how to question the power of our belief systems. There's something I would like to read to you I came across recently. In Ireland in the 1960s, a young nun was sent as a temporary worker to another convent and stepped into a world she had not known existed. Her job was to supervise the women working in the convent laundry, a gloomy and claustrophobic room. The women wore old clothes. Mostly they were quiet and passive, apart from one or two who hadn't been there long and were rebellious. A number of the women were single mothers whose children had been taken from them. The convent graveyard held the bodies of 183 women. Some were unmarried mothers rejected by their families. Others were destitute and homeless because of alcoholism or mental illness. Many of the women she supervised stayed in the convent until they died. The most extraordinary aspect of it is that they were told they were not allowed to leave. They were locked in at night, legally or with their own determination. They could have walked out of the gate any time they wanted, but very few did. For many, there was no place to go. They lived and died in a virtual prison. Until the 1960s, thousands of Irish women were condemned to a life of servitude and confinement with the knowledge, coercion, and approval of family, church, and state. Places were created to remove from society unmanageable women whose alleged crimes varied from being socially inadequate to giving birth out of marriage. Not only were they never told they could leave, but the regimes emphasized their sin and guilt and despised them from ever speaking about themselves. They were called the laundry girls, seen but never spoken about. The nuns who cared for them were equally imprisoned by their own beliefs, that led them to collude in the theft of the freedom and dignity of thousands of women. Our prisons can be very powerful, can appear to be very solid. We tell ourselves at times that we cannot leave, that we cannot walk out the door. One of the great opportunities we are offered here is not to deny or to suppress or to negate our stories, but to sense there is another way of being, a way of being which we long not for the past, where we don't yearn for the future, and where we cling to nothing in the present. 
a way of being in which we don't seek for identity or for belief or for conclusions in any thoughts or in in any judgment. It is an opportunity for something greater to emerge than just the endlessly replayed stories from the past. It is an opportunity to look more deeply, to question what is true for ourselves, to question where freedom lies. There is the courage we carry within us, not to mistake any appearance to be the truth, nor to be accept any description to be the truth of who we are. In this openness, in this willingness to rest in not knowing, the willingness to open to that which we do not know, to that which we have never seen, to that which we have, ne- have no description for, and the willingness to open to that to which we do not know, the truth of who we are can emerge. And that is not separate from the truth that is intrinsic to anything. To connect with the truth, the reality that lies beneath the world of all appearances. May all beings live with integrity. May all beings live with courage. May all beings Live with wisdom. If we could have just a couple of moments quietly together. This talk was given by Christina Feldman at Insight Meditation Society on April 14, 1994. It is an offering of the Dharma 